0: Hello and welcome. This is
1: an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to this Institute for Government event on how the government can deliver its priorities while also preparing for future shocks. It's great to see uh, a full room here at the IFG and thanks to everyone who's also joining us online. We'll be live tweeting the event today so do join in with that. Our uh, our hashtag is IFG Crises. Seems rather negative. Um, <laughs> I don't know who came up with that one. Um, uh, if you're joining online, you can send in questions that we uh, can t- I can take via the iPad. Uh, so uh, use Slido for that. There should be a panel next to your screen so you can send in your questions and you can start sending them in as soon as you like. Uh, Just to say, this is a slightly unusually short event for us, only 45 minutes, so we'll ask anyone who is asking questions at the end to be concise. Um, So, uh, as I say, welcome to this event. I'm really delighted that we have Meg Hillier, Chair of the Public Accounts Committee, here today. Of course, Meg has just uh, published today her seventh, I believe, annual report as Chair of the Committee um, looking at the challenges and opportunities that the PAC uh, has observed in its work across Whitehall, and I'm equally delighted that we're also joined by Alex Chisholm, the Chief Operating Officer of the uh, C- Civil Service and Perm Sec in the Cabinet Office, um, who's here to talk about lots of the issues that uh, Meg has raised in her report. Um, so let's start with you, Meg. Um, you highlight in your report um, some repeated problems which you say the committee has seen uh, in Whitehall and I think that this is to me seems the tremendous value of having a report like this is that you can look across the piece obviously the PSC is a very busy committee um, gets lots of specific reports looking at different aspects of how government is working uh, but you've tried to pull out some of the themes you've seen so what do you think are the most important things that we should take from your report
0: well, I think inevitably over the last year or so, we've seen very fast changeover in government. And one of the, th- so one of the things is that we don't, we sometimes in the moment so much that we get the bigger picture. And some of that bigger picture stuff is around skills and capability, which has improved in the 12 years I've been on the committee. And we have more specialists in digital procurement and so on. But still, there is still a tendency for the fast stream to have generalists who are very bright, but not necessarily capable of delivering some of the more technical aspects of government. There is a tendency in that speed of, of action not to think about the long term. I think good politics, um, so for politicians and civil servants, need to be looking, you know, as well as what's the crisis today, tomorrow, and what might be happening next week, we need to be looking at 10- and 20-year horizons. And with digital change, very often we are looking at 20-year horizons. We also get very bound up in not failing fast. So on the contrary, while we need to do look at the long term, if things aren't working, we need to say, let government say it's not working and pull out quickly and properly and we sometimes see uh, for instance the emergency services network that's a program that hasn't really delivered we've looked at that about 15 times now um, and there haven't been proper lessons learned on a lot of that and then the key thing I pull out is about understanding risk and obviously Covid as we've played that out has played into that and um, we've called um, for a risk uh, senior risk officer in government to look overall at risk across government like you have in banking so a bank could not keep its license if the risk manager and risk officer said uh, that we can't do this. They have to abide by their advice. We don't have the same equivalent in government. And the danger is, we believe on the committee and, and I believe, is that if you don't have something like that mechanism, you can have the day-to-day politics or the day-to-day pressures for civil servants of of government take over from looking at those longer term risks. So that's something we have perhaps a slight disagreement with the, the civil service on, though I don't want to put words into Alex's mouth.
1: <laughs> well, let's give Alex an opportunity to respond on that and, and more generally. So I think for me, what really comes out of the report is this. It's it's a picture of, of a year in which government has been emerging from the pandemic emerging from a a uh, context in which governments had to respond very quickly to a sort of crisis situation, um, has had to roll out enormous programmes, um, you know, do very rapid procurement, all these sorts of unusual activities, while also maintaining business as usual. And I, and I guess that is, I mean, just to pick up on that last point, Meg was making, that very much, that is therefore very much a, a risk uh, balancing task for the senior leadership of the civil service.
2: Yes, indeed, um, and. Great to see you here this morning, or uh, well, this afternoon now. And, you know, uh, first of all, I, uh, you know, I really agree with um, what this report says and, in fact, what you say every time I appear in front of you, really, which is that these longer-term issues are very important. We need to pay attention to them, and we mustn't just be distracted by the new, new thing, the immediate pressure, um, as well as the acute, as the chronic, and we need to make sure that um, in our response to hashtag crisis, we are getting stronger and wiser and better Consequence and I, you know, I believe we are. And, um, you know, those of us who've been through the uh, aftermath of the financial crisis, getting ready for Brexit, dealing with COVID, um, consequence of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, it's been it it has felt like one thing after another. But I do think we have got a lot more capable as consequence, much more focused on, um, on delivery, much much better understanding about what it takes to do that successfully, both in relation to digital systems and the needs of end users. More coordinated across the system, the different elements of government, which is really important, um, uh, and much better, I think, at, at those key things you highlighted around digital change, evaluation, and risk management, um, which is which is really common, I would say, between us. In a way, um, the the questions you ask of me are very often. I find the questions <laughs> I ask of the rest of the system about how are we trying to get better in this way and pushing for the same things. Um, you did highlight one area where we do have disagreement. So since this can't be too consensual because that wouldn't be entertaining enough for these <laughs> audiences who have given up their lunch break. So that is true that on the issue um, of risk management, we are really keen to see an improvement in the risk management and we've invested a lot of effort in that, both in the structures of um, risk management. We have our new uh, head of risk indeed reporting into the, uh, the Treasury um, and a lot of pr- uh, professional skills and process and attention to that the one thing that we haven't said we agree with is to have a person who is the, the chief risk officer. And the reason for that is really twofold. One is, um, and you remember Chris Welland and I were sort of arguing w- 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 with you before at a PAC hearing, we both felt, and I think it's a common view across the system, that, um, you know, permit secretaries, CFOs, DGs, SROs, the major programmes, they need to be responsible for managing the risk. And if there's someone called... The chief risk officer. So the risk is everyone else' the risk that somebody else is concerned. That would be dangerous. So we don't. We want to. We want to keep the responsibility, um, and to be accountable for that. And also because government is so broad that there is. It's not like a bank. There isn't a single person who could have any chance of trying to get their arms around the particular risk because we have got so many. The risks that arise in relation to national security or public health are very different to the risks um, on an economic side or in. Relation to social policy, so um, we we say having a chief risk officer would make things worse rather than better. But having more attention to risk is in an absolutely common ground.
0: Well, where I disagree with you on that is that it doesn't. Having a chief risk officer wouldn't stop all of those other people taking notes mm. of risk. It would be very worrying if it didn't. As an accounting mm. officer, actually, yeah. you couldn't not to take account of that risk. Yeah. But it's about having that overview. And that's absolutely helpful at a political level. Imagine, you know, a new government comes in and you see what the problems are. And in the day-to-day distractions that absorb number 10, the mm-hmm. Cabinet Office, as well as the longer-term planning, that, I think, is important to have. Yeah. And actually, if you look at it in other settings, it works and it does deliver. And I think the danger is... Um, and you know, if I've been provocative, that you all defend your silos a bit, and you want to be in charge of your own departments. But mm-hmm. actually, there isn't that overarching view across government. You in the Cabinet Office are the nearest that it gets to that. Yeah. But that can depend on a number, not on sometimes on the personalities involved, both political and at senior civil service level. And, and it needs to be, I think, stronger than that.
2: Yeah. So um, having moved from a de- departmental position to uh, when I, I used to run Bays, uh the Business Energy Industrial Strategy Department, to the centre of course, I'm very much in favour of a strong. Centre now, um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and working together with Treasury in kind of lockstep, um, applying that proper pressure for continuous improvement and including in relation to risk management, and that very much is a joint undertaking between Cabinet Office and Treasury. And a lot of the things that we do, as you you know, when you've had hearings on things like uh, you know fraud or digital service and things, you often get or property you often get cabinet office and treasury to say well, what are you doing across government mm-hmm. to improve the overall system here and that you know we rightly accept that responsibility and that is indeed one of the advantages of those of you who've been at this a long time the cabinet office used not to do all of this work i mean mm-hmm. the cabinet office of old was kind of doing that traditional world of coordination supporting the prime minister interface of parliament etc but it didn't really do the business of a corporate HQ of all this cross-cutting functional professional work, but that's what we do now. Yeah, and how many...
0: You've got a very high... number. And, well. yes, yeah, so as a
2: result, of, you know, mm. 10,000 people working mm. in the cabinet office. I say, well, surely it doesn't require all those people to do traditional cabinet. No, it doesn't. I mean, those people are... Many of them are working in other departments as commercial procurement experts. All the fast streams in government are now on our books, you know. So there's a certain number of people who actually mm. don't work in the cabinet office but come under the cabinet mm. office. But the main area is that we've got... A lot of people working now in in digital services, in HR, in security, in property, in counter-fraud, the Public Sector Fraud Authority, a new body which we just set up in last year, all of these people are really super trained, super expert. They're not those kind of uh, old amateurs who you, you, you used to worry about. And they're also people who are very focused on the outcomes that you can achieve and prepared to see things through, which again is a very important theme in your report.
1: Just pushing on from that, the, yeah. the other theme that relates to that, which which uh, comes out from next report, is about government's ability to attract the really high quality people with those skills yeah. uh, into those professions, which as yeah. you say, sitting sitting um, sort of notionally in the cabinet office, yeah. but actually um, in some ways dispersed across the system. Do you feel that you actually have the right pay and uh, sort of systems? Ways to attract people in to do those jobs that you need because of the flexibilities, are, you know, I hear from lots of people in the civil mm. service can be quite a constraint.
2: Yeah, it's tough, and I think you rightly yeah, um, uh, highlight the point that we need to focus on the most. So, we're never going to be able to match the salaries that the top digital people, top property people, the top security people can get in the private sector. Um, you know, I do a lot of direct recruitment, I have all the heads of functions all report to me, and by definition, those people often. You open competitions, they come from the private sector, and some of them get paid millions, I mean, literally millions every year. So we're not going to, there's no, it's inconceivable for me that a future government would say that was the right thing to do. So what we can do is we can pay, you know, a reasonable amount to to offset, if you like, the gap. But more importantly, as you say, is making sure that those people really have the ability to be effective in their roles, really have support. Um, obviously, people are very... Motivated to come into public service, they all find the work we do is so satisfying and so interesting. But if they can't get what they want done, that, that, that is the thing that yeah. would put people off.
0: Well, it's interesting as well when we were looking at this recently, we saw that mm-hmm. the number of apprenticeships in digital had gone down. Yeah. That was actually a perverse outcome of the headcount reduction announcement. So, that's a sign that politicians should be careful what they ask for because actually, one of the other things is the civil service could be growing its own because if you get someone in young and train them up, then they are going to be embedded hopefully for longer because of the pensions and someone that will will drive people through. And actually the civil service is a big enough machine Mm -hmm. to do that um, and and create its own, and so we think there needs to be something more creative on that. But we're very worried on the committee. We've looked at digital transformation across a number of departments now and they are very long-term programs. Very often um, they're seen as an IT, or they were until more recently, seen as an IT program, and actually it's a business transformation program that has huge potential to save billions of pounds of taxpayers' money and make life more efficient for us all as well. Um, so we're saving time for the businesses and so on. That can I mean, DEFRA's got a very hard hand to, uh, to deal with, so feel sorry for Tamara Finkelstein, because they've got some of the most ageing, difficult um, uh, digital databases. One case In one case, vets were having to go on eBay to buy old technology because the platform that was being used was so out of date it wouldn't work on new technology. That's the kind of reality of what's going on. When we looked at at driving licences, because of the challenges, uh, the delays for some of those in lockdown, while bits of the system were efficient if you've got a straightforward driving licence renewal but argue you if you're old or you've got a health problem, and you have to go through a very paper-based mm. process to deal with that. And so there are huge bits of the system that are really, really inefficient. Mm. And some of that is about having very high-level digital specialists, but actually a lot of it is making sure that everybody in the civil service is a digital specialist in a way.
2: Yes, and I, I mean, I, you know, I, I really want to put to, to uh, uh, pay, pay tribute to the work of the NAO and the PAC in this area. I think you've written some really brilliant reports, and I know it's been part of your your intention, the CNAG, is to do more reports which can be. Uh, acted on with, with, with um, lessons learned and, and, and not just sort of, you know, if, as it were, looking for recriminations so over the past. And your digital reports have been prime examples of that. We have agreed with those and adopted them. And I, you were kind enough to say that our plan, Transforming for a Digital Future, last year is a very good plan, embodies the lessons from the past, and we're actually on track with it. And your concerns now are will we be, you know, stay on track for the next two years, which obviously is very important. But for the first time, we have now actually taken all of those legacy systems, which are so important, um, uh, in uh, and really can constrain people from doing the job they want to do, which is provide great services to the public. And we've sort of put all of them into a stack, and all of the most serious ones are being remediated. We have funded plans against that and timescales, and we're reporting to you every year on that. And you can see that some of those old systems have already been retired. And I think the uh, it, you know well, one of the side effects of COVID, a good one, is that I think the... The extent to which old systems hold you back has become really apparent to people. And there has been a terrific investment, um, you know, two and a half billion pounds set aside in SR21 for overcoming these legacy problems. And on the back of new, modern cloud based systems, it's much easier to provide the super fast, super high quality, low error rate digital services that everyone expects. Um, and some of our best services today, like Universal Credit, again, fire-tested during COVID, I think they had 150,000 applications one evening, Um, were able to cope both with the volume but also with people not being able to get into job centres and people being able to get access not only to money but also to advice and support through their own personal journal, um, which is part of the, the, the system they have there. So I think lots of investments that have been made by DWP and HMRC, particularly over the years, but other departments too, have made us much more agile, much better, you know, able to cope with uh, with challenges and also more focused on giving fantastic services.
0: But one of the challenges, of course, is endlessly... I mean, if I had a, a pound for every time we mentioned it, data, 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 the data that government collects is often very poor, um, is often very... Not even... In the past, it wasn't even really understood why your data was important. I think we're certainly yeah. seeing through the committee now with different witnesses, there's a bit better understanding of that. Mm-hmm. It feels like it slows things down, and you can't have the digital without the data improvement. You've got to both go hand in hand. Otherwise, you're just sticking a new computer and digital system on top of existing Setups. So that's something that really needs to improve. And the other thing that's always at risk of this is the high turnover of both officials, particularly SROs, and ministers. Obviously, we've seen a particularly high turnover of ministers in the last year, but actually, you know, and when Tony Blair was Prime Minister, there was quite a fast turnover of ministers. David Cameron kept people in post a bit longer, sort of, you know, so they were at least accountable for their decisions. There there are probably arguments both ways, but failure is always an orphan. And the danger is that the person, whether it's the politician or the minister that births the project, isn't there at the next stage and certainly isn't there at the failure point. And so, mm. in fact, once, sadly it was the day that PC Palmer was murdered in Parliament, but Alex was one of three witnesses from then DEC. So there, was, mm. there were the current and two former permanent secretaries of, 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 of then Deck were going to appear in front of us because we needed to see a project. We were discussing a project that went from beginning to end, and mm. it didn't happen. But that was an example of a very rare example where we would have had three people in the room from the birth of a project to the end of a project, so no one could say, "Well, it was before my time." Yeah. And it is hard. I mean, I don't not crying civil servants who try to read into the old papers. It's never the same reading into the papers. Well, you tell me. But going yeah. back, reading the papers is a very yeah. different thing to actually having lived through it. Um, so I think that there is a big, a big issue there about about
1: data and about turnover. I want to come back to the turnover <coughs> question, but I'll let you just. I mean, I, well, think, just so,
2: yeah. I really, really agree with that. And we have been doing a few things to try and strengthen the incentives for people to stay in position because. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly on those major programmes. You know, the um, universal credit is an example, Smart Meet is another, where you've had somebody who's seen it through all those vicissitudes and learned a lot. Well, from Neil Cooley still, was in front of us yesterday, exactly, yeah. 10 years
0: yeah. now, yeah. dealing with it.
2: And, 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 and Darren Walker, Smart meters is the same. Mm-hmm. So I think that is exemplary, and we've tried to make that more the norm. So... Um, try and encourage that. We, but they don't you know, get
0: promotion. That's the problem.
2: We, we have been doing pivotal role ounces, which, which has really helped there. Um, they also get amazing training. Um, and I think three quarters of the people who run major programmes now have been for the MPLA or, uh, you know, um, uh, or are on it now. Um, and uh, it, it has begun to make an effect. I was looking at the, how the average tenure for an SRO of a major programme was three and a half years, is now four and a half years. So it has begun to move in the right direction. Maybe it needs to mm-hmm. be longer, but that's, that's good. Um, the other thing is just more generally, not just the major programs, there is a, a tendency for people to bounce around between roles and play a kind of a bingo between kind of arbitrage opportunities. That's not great for the system. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to... One of the reasons that we've been developing proposals for capability-based pay is it tries to recognize people for domain knowledge mm-hmm and for skills that are relevant to their current job, so that you know, if you want to improve your pay, a very natural human desire, you don't have to get promoted or moved to another department to do that. Mm.
1: Can I get back to the point about uh, long-term focus? So We talked yeah. about it in, rela- in relation to, to yeah. digital, in relation to, to uh, major projects and mm. so on. Obviously, political churn as mm-hmm. well as civil service churn can create issues with ki- keeping a long-term focus on some of these Projects and and, and areas where you you Mm at the centre are trying in in your sort of corporate role Mm -hmm. to keep a focus. How can the civil service um, ensure that sort of investment is sustained on programmes, particularly in the current climate, um, when there's political churn going on around you?
2: Yes, I think it's a great question. Um, I think some of the ways that we've just been talking about in relation to things like legacy systems by saying, this is a, a funded program where it 's publicly accountable, and you know rightly, I welcome the attention of the NEOPSSC so sort of tell me where you are every year with that, tell me about your progress that 's a way of making sure that something that is important but not always urgent uh, is attended to. The focus on risk is very good, so who who has set you know who set that risk appetite, who really owns that who's going to be accountable for it We try and make it harder for people to evade that responsibility to pin it on people because you then feel I am the risk owner I am now going to drive you know the the investment in that and see it through to make sure that they very very important long term things even high impact low probability events do get the attention that they need so that's part of the process I also think that um, again institutions not just because you're here today but you know the PAC and the IFG have a good part to play in that because you're not in the day to day in the same way and you're there to say look what is the pattern? What is the learning? And to make sure that we're not recreating errors.
0: But there's a challenge, of course, with politicians. So I think, as I'm the politician on the platform, I should probably address that head on. And we know yes. that, I mean, you know, there, there are, we've all seen it, ministers who won't, perhaps put off a decision because they think they might get reshuffled before mm. they have to take responsibility or ownership yep. for an issue. And so there is a challenge to be done with the political class to make sure that we are looking at that long-term Two and actually, we're at a very dangerous point now. I'm mean, going to see David here, that and, and Toby, that moment when we're writing manifestos. So, somebody in each of the main parties is right, sat away in a room beavering away at this probably not talking to any of us about it. Mm. Um, and the danger is that things get written down that become a promise and a proposal that actually aren't achievable. Or we'll say, we'll, you know, the Labour Party will say, we're going to have X number of new doctors and the Conservative Party will say, well, we better up it a bit. And then it mm-hmm. becomes this sort of auction going on that isn't always deliverable. Yeah. So so there is a challenge, and it's one of my bugbears, which I think in, beyond my reach on the PAC is how you get manifesto writing embedded in reality. Um, it would be a good help to the civil service. But then the, then the, the, the challenge is about how the civil service manages to keep the things that need to be going, well, there's a spitball of politics going on up here, yeah. whether good or bad, or an election. I mean, not all bad stuff, it's you know, democracy, but the the, the basic stuff that, that still has to happen. And there's nothing to stop a minister coming in and saying, yeah. I give you a direction um, yeah. to scrap that digital programme because I want the money you spent somewhere else instead. And that's always a, a risk. So we've got to make sure actually through the good offices of the IFG party that we're making mm-hmm. sure that all potential ministers are trained I have been to the Major Projects Leadership Academy and I think David will have probably gone to that mm-hmm. as well and um, I don't know, if, probably Toby hasn't because we wouldn't have uh, we haven't been in government <laughs> uh, in that time but it's it's it is it's something that I now know ministers go through, um, but the thing is anybody could become a minister as we saw with the coalition mm-hmm. um, and you know, we're a bunch of rank amateurs MPs really on the whole so we, we come in and we don't know what we're doing until we're doing it um, and we rely on the civil service and others mm-hmm. to give advice and so there is it's an inherent tension uh, good and bad in the system um not all bad because sometimes policies of previous governments do need to be changed because it's a political change or because mm. they weren't working but that is as a risk i think and i think this turnover issue is something that really bothers us so that we have seen that improvement in sros but we still think there isn't enough reward and how many people who really run projects have become uh, permanent secretaries you're probably the most project hands-on um, secretary nearly in the system. I think I'm thinking, I'm trying to thinking, running my... I'd say. List. Probably, you can't, <laughs> you're not allowed to say, but, but because you were at the CMA and, other, and you've had private sector experience, but actually Jeez. there are not a lot of public, of civil permanent secretaries who've gone through that route of delivering a major project. Uh, David Williams, I suppose, would be one of the nearest, yeah. the one of near ones at defence, yeah. but there aren't many of you who've gone through that route. Now, I'm not under that your political skills mm-hmm. are pretty important, especially in recent times, yeah. um, but... But delivering a major project for us on the committee is understandably pretty high priority.
1: To focus on something more positive, um, in a way, the uh, pandemic generated a great deal of innovation, particularly in public services in the NHS, for example, virtual wards, that sort of thing. How are you going about, Alex, trying to sort of foster and sustain that uh, spirit of innovation and sort of... uh, back to risk, but, you know, justifiable risk-taking, failing fast mm-hmm. is sort of the thing that you highlight in your report in the civil service coming out of the pandemic.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I really welcome the PAC's attention on this, and it's, it's in your, 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 your remarks in, as chair, Meg, um, because I think that is an area we need to, to do more at, you know, frankly. I think the civil service is very good at kind of inspired improvisation. It's amazing, actually, <laughs> what people are able to do in response to... Um, Uh, the demands, the situation, the political masters. But um, what we're not so good at, I think, is at at, um, uh, being systematically trialling new things uh, and choosing from that which is the best and sticking with that. Um, And I think, again, rightly in your report, you highlight that we continue with kind of low-value projects uh, for too long it's not that they have no value but they're just not as good as other ones we could be doing and that therefore creates a terrific drag effect on the overall system because there's obviously a limited amount of resources both human and financial and we do need to get better at saying it's fine your project you know it not, it's not personal you've done everything possible but we have to stop that project now because there's one more valuable that's coming on and we need you to work on that and i don't think we are as good at that as as we could be and obviously are. Political system and uh, you know the, the the way the kind of the media inquiry works sometimes I think provides uh, negative incentives again for politicians to say I'm I'm stopping this um, uh, and we just need to be possibly a little bit more mature at recognising that you can't do everything brilliantly and maybe some of that will come out through the the thinking and the inquiry about about COVID will will say look you know in a tough world you could, you won't get everything right. Um, and But you, you need to learn fast. How,
1: yeah. how does the PAC think about this? Because obviously, you know, you spend a lot of your time asking people about things that have gone wrong. Yeah. How do you think about how to do that in a way which doesn't make them think, well, next time I don't want such a tough appearance before the PAC? I won't. Mm. Yeah, well, we'll the, the, there are
0: some slam dunk. I mean, in fact, when I remember Philip Hammond when he was Chancellor, he said, mm. Some of these things I sign off, I know they're going to be in front of the PAC in a few years' time. Yeah. So we know that some that are traumatic at birth, yeah. which, which everyone's trying to yeah, resolve yeah. with better contracting and so on, and some that become more problematic. So some of that are sort of slam dunk just is failed. I mean, um, the, the, the airport in St Helena where it was so windy you couldn't land aircraft uh, and they actually discussed lopping the top off a mountain to make it better I kid you not I mean you know there's some of these you just actually can't believe that was a training session in the Commonwealth for a while so they, I think it embarrassed the UK so much the Kenyans came up with one about prisoner effluents fueling their kitchens which was a failure but that's well. so there are failures around the world but then but actually it is partly that it is really important we we pull out from those day-to-day issues and pull out some of these wider themes because One thing, we're a cross-party in the PAC, let's not forget, four parties represented. We have a very strong ethos that we've got a constitutional role to help Mm. government improve because Mm. every pound of our constituents' money spent in taxes is a pound we want to see spent well. We're helped by the fact we're not saying whether the government policy X is the right policy, but did X get delivered as X was supposed to be delivered is really where we're at. And that's uh, and where we see repeated failures, uh, you know, um, the committee agreed my report without. It, it, it's, it's something as a take it or leave it report, but they they agreed it because we all do have share the same broad views on this. Yeah. And I think that we've got to make sure that we look at that long term that we are helping civil servants admit mistakes. We had a very good session yesterday, actually, about resetting programmes, which is, for some of you here, you might be interested. Generally, not something you put in a political leaflet. You know, yeah. standing for election to get reset programmes, <laughs> programmes reset better. But it, it was interesting having four SROs talk very openly and honestly about what had gone wrong and what had gone right, including we pushed them on what ministerial intervention worked and what didn't. Mm-hmm. So they were giving shout-outs to some ministers where that, back, that strong backup, ability yeah. to say... This isn't working, we are going to stop it. And we need to allow people in the political and civil service sphere to say that, that this isn't working, we have called on it, and not keep it limping on so that the next person calls on it and it's not on your record as a failure. Actually, if you get 90% of things right 90% of the time, you're doing pretty damn well, but you've got to call out the 10%. That's not going well. And, and I'm a Shoreditch MP. So I would say a bit more Shoreditch, a little less Whitehall sometimes, <laughs> um, which might terrify Alex. <laughs> no, no,
2: that's good. That's good. Although I haven't got my, my own soundbite ready for that one. But, the, um, <laughs> um, but just a, a, a few things to add about that. I suppose one of the financial incentives, the, um, uh, the Treasury came up with the Shared Outcomes Fund. And that has been really good over the years, actually encouraging. Um, and it is competitive. Different departments, different parts of government come up with the proposals and the best get backed. And they are, as the name suggests, they require working across government, which is the space that you recognise. Not enough of those,
0: though. For. We haven't seen that many joint bids, really. Yeah, but
2: more. Yeah, and there's another round just, just happening now. The data challenge is another thing that we've done to try and encourage this. I think through COVID, we've got much better work in the scientific community, which is where obviously a lot of innovation is going to come from. Um, we, uh, people's skills and understanding of the opportunities of innovation have been, we've got a a data innovation masterclass over five thousand people have done, and I suppose the other thing I think is incredibly important from my experience in the private sector is that you know it, it's a, it is a kind of a truism that it's the customer that keeps you honest. Where that's where you have to keep innovating in order to keep up with the customer's expectations. We've become much more like that in government. In our top seventy-five government services program, move trying to move you know, fifty of those to the great standard. We say all of those services. That's the ones which have the highest level of transactions and use across or the public service, that's 75 out of about 7,500, 7, so it's the top 1%, but 80% by volume of fees. We say all those need to have a single service owner, and then if you are the single service owner, you are saying, like, what do we do, need to do... To, you know in the next week the next month the next year to improve that service to customers and that will drive that continuous innovation culture is
0: what we want. But we I mean on data well, there were still really, really big gaps so when yeah. we were quizzing dwp about some of the data they weren't mm. even collecting the ethnic the statistics on ethnicity mm. of claimants in some sectors and they were just beginning to do that we weren't mm. we were in 20 this was last year I think 2022 just beginning to do that and mm. this is absolutely critical and if you're a minister I remember when I was a minister many many years ago a long time ago since we were in government um, and there was a, cut, a budget cut mm. being proposed in the Home Office they were talking about cutting the social social science budget and I said and I was the science minister mm. in the Home Office I said don't do that because then there will be a gap in understanding, and any future ministers of whatever party will not have an understanding of the wrong, long-running thing. I think in the end it did get cut. My voice was a, a lone and small voice in the corner of the Home Office that most people didn't notice or care about. But um, I don't say that bitterly. I that's just realistic about politics. And But that is a tragedy, and that is another bit that's difficult. Does the civil service try and protect that? Mm. But if a new minister comes in and says, well, that bit of money over here could be better spent somewhere else, that is a democratic uh, decision, and it is a really... It, it's a challenge. But the data... Sometimes the bleeding, the obvious data is still not collected and something that we would want to see, not just because we're on the committee, but actually you take your average MP, they want to know these sort of facts and figures. They might not all frame it in that way, but that's what we need to know. And I think that is
1: still a shock to me that the system hasn't
0: quite caught up with the modern, modern world. And that was some, yeah.
1: certainly something the IFG found in a recent report we did on the Treasury mm. and the response that the Treasury had to COVID was that some of the uh, sort of amazingly fast, uh, huge programmes that were rolled mm. out in terms of support to people could have been better targeted if there had been more preparatory work, yes, if exactly. the data We've had been that, there yeah. to understand yeah. um, how, to, how to target that support yeah. better. One final question uh, to you, and then we're going to come to uh, questions from the floor and online. Um, permsecs tell me they fear appearing before the PAC much more than they do their own departmental select committees. Um, so I'm interested, Meg, if you think there's anything other committees should learn from the PAC, and uh, Alex, I'm interested in your comment on uh, what Meg says in her report about uh, the fact that she feels civil service is scrutinised by Parliament. I wonder what your view is on that. Um,
0: well, I think it's interesting, because now we have a thing called guesting. So for those who are not nerdily following how select committees work... Any member of any select committee in the House of Commons is allowed to, by request or by invite, guest on another committee. So I've guested on other committees. We've had members from those committees guest on us. And we found that a really fruitful environment. But what's been interesting, so I went to one committee and um, I. Was absolutely shocked that the witnesses were saying, I don't have those numbers to hand, I don't know that, I can't tell you that figure. They would never have got away with that in front of the Public Accounts Committee. And we do take it very seriously as a committee. We prepare as a team at least a week out. You know, as a team, we all get together a week before people are maybe prepared before then, so that we are all really trying to pull together on the same page and make sure that we're on top of the facts, figures, and data and information, and then really take it above that. So we don't expect we expect our witnesses to know their stuff. We expect that we are on top of it enough to make sure that we don't have to get mm-hmm. into the weeds and that we can try and raise it above. So I think pr- it's, it's it, preparation uh, it, is, for us, a big part of it. But, but I think it is an expectation that, well, certainly I've fostered, but I think it was fostered well before me as a 160-year-old with expectation that you wouldn't come in front of the Public Accounts Committee and not know your onions because you wouldn't get away with it. Is that? how you feel <laughs> uh,
2: it is how I feel um, <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> uh, and I think very rightly and I think the um uh two 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 sort of um differences between select committees and the PAC I think um uh which is striking to me as a civil servant so one is that uh, as an accounting officer you are personally responsible yeah. to parliament so that feels a bit different to attending a select committee especially if you're alongside a minister um your, your personal accountability uh, you know, is is there, and that I'm, I'm sure you feel it both when you give evidence and you prepare for it and also when you get back to the office office and say, I never, never want to have to go through <laughs> that again, okay, thank you very much, so let's fix this problem. So it has a, you know, mm. has a strong salutary effect. Um, I think the other um, aspect, obviously, is that the um, the PAC's hearings are almost without question after an, an NAO report and that the facts yes, of the NAO exactly, report yeah. are agreed. Uh, with the department. So I think that gives us a common information base and then you can have a good old argument yep. about what, how to interpret that. But otherwise, in select committee you often don't have that hard information mm-hmm. base. So I think they, they miss that. And I do notice that you do work as a team, um, in you know, as, as as a PAC and also that um, you are very thoughtful about the effect you have on the system over time. And that helps, obviously, longevity is a benefit there. Um, and, you know, you've been calling, for example for more evaluation. I think you wrote a critical report about three years ago. You know, it's in the declaration of government reform. we put a huge effort into into that. The evaluation task force, part of my department now, you know, co-supported by the Treasury. I think they've now evaluated 211 programmes over £100 billion. I mean, we might have done that without your stimulus, but we might not. Mm. And uh, you said... You should be doing that. Do it properly, and we said, "Fair enough, we'll do it."
0: And hopefully, we give you the yeah. we occasionally give you the plaudits when you do things <laughs>
2: that we've asked for. Yeah, so a, more, so more, more, more of those would always be welcome. Yeah, <laughs> good,
0: good try.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm going to take some questions now. Uh, there's a waving mic from my colleague at the back, um, and uh, if there's anyone next door who wants to come through and ask a question, please uh, feel free. So, uh, Lauren, gentleman right next to you. Thank you, Roger Wicks from the British Red
2: Cross. One of the key lessons we've learned from COVID was that what makes different groups vulnerable wasn't well considered in the UK response. How can we better consider and plan for the needs of vulnerable groups in future crises?
1: Thank you. I guess we're going to do groups of three. So there's one at the front here, Lauren, and then I'll take one from online.
2: David Eddington, trustee of the IFG and um, recovering um, minister and uh, MP. Um,
0: Money. Um, The allocation of money is clearly key both to getting a major priority project right and to dealing with a crisis and having a contingency available. Um, Does the bilateral process for negotiating this between Treasury and a spending department provide an adequate way of doing this when there's no cabinet discussion about the relative importance of different priorities and of the relative sums of money that should be allocated to each of them?
1: Actually, those are two such good questions. I think we'll just start with those. Make okay, do you want to start? Okay. Um, I think on the
0: vulnerable groups thing, it's about data, 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 partly understanding who... who I mean, well, so First of all, it's about preparation for, the, for, the, for a pan, the pandemic or any other critical situation. Because if... Well, I remember years ago being on a Cabinet subcommittee talking about the then-threatened pandemic, and I was a substitute for somebody for some reason. And, and they talked about, well, if there's a pandemic, we'll close schools. And I said, well, that'll be a problem, won't you, because parents will want to work, so they'll all just bring that... You know, anyway, I asked that stupid question, if you like... Uh, only to find late, years later that actually that stupid question hadn't perhaps been asked enough in government. No one had thought of what would happen with schools closing. Um, so I was, you know, not claiming anything particularly great there. But but I, it, we need to be making sure we're preparing. Then the data so that you can easily access it. So the vulnerable people database was quite patchy actually in places, but. It was cobbled together as well as it probably could be with the, in the circumstances. Um, and then then when, then when you've got that data, how, how you access it, what databases you use, so some bits of the system work better than others, and then making sure, of course, all of that fits in with the planning. Do you take both at the same time? So on the money, I, I think actually it is, it's a healthy tension to have a Treasury that does what it does, but I think actually there's not enough political understanding. And the constant problem we have as members of the committee is you talk about billions and millions And then you talk about £40,000 spent in someone's town centre and they're far more interested in the £40,000 spent in their town centre than they are in the amount of money they can't even understand. And uh, it is a real frustration. And actually, it is a really big challenge. You know, we're 18 months or so from a general election. You tell me, any of you, if you can think of a politician on the front bench of either side who you could actually go through their budget, um, could sit in a cabinet or shadow cabinet meeting and talk about relative sums of money and how it could be allocated and um, not being rude about my colleagues because they've got many challenges that they're dealing with data, whether ministers or shadow ministers but I bet that that conversation is not happening and it needs to be at a more political level um, and I think you know hats off to chief secretaries of the treasury and, and, and chancellors and shadow chancellors and shadow chief secretaries who are trying to get that debate into their cabinets cabinet meetings but I think there's a big problem there about how that's done and Curiously, at local government level, it's probably better, probably because people are a bit closer to the ground um, and seeing this will happen in this ward or this will happen in our schools. And it just feels big, big, big mon- amounts of money just feel very distant, I think. And I don't know how we get over that and better financial education for ministers so When I was a councillor, I had training about how to understand accounts because I, I don't really understand this local government finance stuff. Help me, please. And we don't do enough of that for members
2: in the parliament. Great. And on uh, Roger's question first, fourth, and British Red Cross, um, the uh, absolutely the, the uh, impact on different vulnerable groups uh, is something which, as Meg said, we can understand better and better today using data. It was a key issue, obviously, in COVID. Um, I know it's one of the first issues which is going to be looked at by the COVID inquiry. Um, uh, but even in the um, the kind of it, it, in the conduct of that, I saw examples of how, for example, um, uh, you know, we were. Uh, Uh, saw very quickly that it had different impacts on different uh, uh, ethnic groups, which required both a medical response. We also saw, for example, I remember the the take up of vaccines in different communities was very different. Um, That's not so much a medical response. It's more like a kind of behavioral response. And we actually, uh, the government hired influencers in different communities to try and, you know, encourage that take up. And that was quite successful. So I think, you know, being very quickly responsive to differential impacts across different groups is something which is key to modern government, and uh, you're absolutely right to, to highlight that. And on David's question, I've got no no, no sort of magic solution to it, but um, I think um, uh, first of all, the reality uh, uh, you, know, you, you you would recognise as well as it's more tr- trilateral than bilateral, I think, between sort of Number 10 and Cabinet Office and Deputy Prime Minister and the role that you had um, as CDL as well, working um, as a sort of counterpoint with the Treasury and the, the Line Department. But the big areas of kind of opportunity I feel are in cross-government budgets. When you think about you know net zero and economic security mm-hmm. and leveling up, they're not just one department. There's lots mm-hmm. of different departments. So I think that is the area of space we need to be better at. And we've tried different things with sort of budget holders across government, but I think that the, uh, the ministerial process there could, could certainly be strengthened. Um, the other thing is just which relates to what I was saying before about recycling from low value projects is that you know oftentimes the political pressures are so great that you want to kind of fully allocate all your money and then everyone you know it's 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 sort of gone. The reality, as we must all recognise from recent years, is that you need to hold a lot back back for future contingencies and you need to be very disciplined about that. And also when you may have given it to somebody, it turns out that the the benefits, the impact of what they thought they'd be able to get are just not yeah, coming. Exactly. And then you just say, well you can't have it anymore. Bad luck. Yes. Yeah. Because we need that for something else. And yes. I think those those are the two areas of really I would really focus attention. Thank
1: you. Okay. there's a question online from Gerard Adams. How can we ensure that crisis planning stretches beyond the constraints of the five-year political cycle in Westminster? More questions. There's a question, uh, Lauren, down here at the front.
0: Thanks. uh, Toby
2: Harris, House of Lords, and I chair the National Preparedness Commission. I'd be interested to expand on this point about um, short-termism in government,
0: How do you institutionalise long-term thinking? How do you actually make Mm -hmm. it happen? And then more specifically, who owns systemic risk and interconnected risk? You've got your risk owners and risk managers in the different government departments, but risks are necessarily interconnected. And Mm -hmm. Meg gave the example of what happens when the schools close. That clearly wasn't contemplated.
2: So who is responsible for thinking across departmental boundaries? There's one just Great. gentleman here. You uh, thank you. Yep. Uh, Hugh Lloyd, previously uh, an advisor at CLG and DEFRA. Um, I wonder, Meg, if you could examine, you, you're starting to make the point about the relationship between the civil service as one bit of the governance system mm-hmm. and local officials, be they local government or other frontline public service delivery. Um, what could we improve about the relationship between those things, given many crises? Mm-hmm perhaps are we're already starting in some places they're just not necessarily national so you know we might get ahead if we had good relations what can we do on that front thank you that's great alex do you want to start um great i'll, I'll just say a couple of things on each one and then i hand over to Meg for for better answers you've got more time to prepare um <laughs> the, uh, um <coughs> on the um uh the, the the first question um around the planning um uh so it's in more than five years um uh uh, or the political cycle, I think a couple of things. First of all, the um, the, 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 the national uh, security risk assessment, the national risk assessment, is indeed much longer than that, much longer horizons, 10, 15, 20 years, there are longer risks than that. And the process of preparing that, compiling it, has just been completely overhauled and done with uh, um, the help of the Royal Academy of Engineering. And it's now, um, I think, very strong. We've just published the, the NSRA has been completed, and the NRA, the new one, will be published very shortly. So, See for yourself, and I think that is a, is a good, really solid way of thinking about, very hard about long-term risks and issues. Um, the other thing is just um, to mention is that, um, <clears throat> and uh, paying a compliment here to the IFG, in your report last July on managing extreme risks, you said, look, it's difficult for the people who are dealing with the day-to-day crisis in what we call the COBRA team to really give enough time and attention to things that are five or ten years away. Um, when that's the same thing. So the old civil contingent secretariat was all in the same group. We've now separated that and a completely separate team are responsible for that long term they call the Resilience Directorate so they're not caught up in the day-to-day pressures so to enable that time to think ahead so I think that is a genuine improvement and thank you for your report suggesting it. Um, On Toby's questions about kind of um, interactions between different risks, so one of the things there that we've become obviously hugely conscious, even more conscious uh, of through the financial crisis, Brexit and COVID is that um, you, know, you prepare for, for one risk you know, and a second risk but you have these sort of multiple effects and it ripples right through the whole system and you know, the economic consequences of you know, lockdown for example would be a good example of it so I think that um, some of the testing that we did wasn't as thorough and as complete as it could be and the new, t- the new exercises we do are very very real and very much look at multiple different scenarios and secondary and tertiary and Um, quadruple effects um we've just done one for example on um what would happen in case of a major energy outage It's called mighty oak but it is exactly testing that um integrated systemic effects um and then the uh question about um interactions between central and local government um i think that um I was very struck by a report written by, dare I say, another institute, the uh, Blavaknik,
1: um,
2: who've just written a fantastic report themselves about um, long-term crises. And they talk there about the interactions between central and local, both recognising that they got a bit better during Brexit, but also, I think, making a very fair and powerful point that so much is now expected of the local channel, have they really got the capacity to deliver on that, yeah. especially not for just a short-term crisis like a flood or something like that, local resilience forums are well set up for that, but when you have to do it for month after month year after year, have they really got the capability to deliver against that and their view is that they weren't really set up for some of the jobs that, that COVID would have, would have asked them to play and uh, I mean that is a very serious point to be taken.
1: Yeah, I can recommend that report.
0: Thank you. Yeah, on the five-year planning cycle. I mean, there, there is, there are many things in government that go beyond that. The MOD equipment plan, which is over ten years, mm-hmm. um, and so that the thing. I always think on defence, whatever the politics have been, and been quite diverse across the last thirteen years or so. There's actually a fairly standard approach to that, so that mm-hmm. helps because there's some consensus. Yeah, we can argue about which type of tank or whatever, but broadly speaking, both main parties anyway are. are broadly in the same place. But I do think that, that this is partly just the inevitability of democracy, that you're going to get, you know, a new government comes in. In fact, sometimes individuals in an existing government will mm. change, and that can change. Look at the, the issue of the difference between Chris Grayling and Michael Gove at Ministry of Justice, for instance. So we saw quite radical change even with individuals. I mean, I think that individual change worries me a bit more than than, than the five-year change, because if you, you've got to have some certainty. What I think is something that politicians should bear in mind is if you chop and change, it, this is very... Difficult for the civil service. They need decisions to keep moving on. They need to know that they've got backup political cover for those decisions to be implemented. So when things get rocky or difficult or there's criticism, that they've got that political cover to deliver, or a political judgment that we just need to cut our losses at this point. But the cover is there. Otherwise, you just end up with inertia, and I think there was a real problem. um So I think we were sort of in, saddled with the five year planning cycle. I mean, the challenge, of course, having had the five year election term, which was quite nice for those of us knowing when our jobs might end or, or, or whatever, we have time for election. Um, actually, now we're all on tent hooks because we could have an election any moment now. And so we're in that awful gap, gap between elections where things are not, you know, not... Some, well, I think the government think things are happening, but it, 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 there is a certain inertia there as well and toby i think on, on um, the short term and as long term, I mean, this is one of the things we want to see a risk officer for mm-hmm. to see that overall picture of what's going on and actually across the public sector really i mean they wouldn't they would obviously be government focused um because that embedding that long-term i think as alex sort of has hinted at if you've got long-term funded projects that it's quite difficult for a politician to unpick it you could say it's a crafty civil service plot to keep certain things sensible going but actually because it but it, but we do need some consensus on some of those long-term things like the digital change we've been talking about or it doesn't don't you know, but i think who owns a systemic risk you've got to have someone very senior who can walk in just like you've got a national security advisor who can walk into the prime minister and say prime minister this is the situation you know you've got to understand this you need someone who can be who's got real clout and i think the danger of what Alex is, you know, talks about accounting officers and everything, having quite rightly their assessment and understanding of risk in their own area. Mm. I do think you need that overarching thing, and that's the commission, position of the committee. And on the terms of about the, uh, working with the civil service we're working with lo- locally, I think in COVID we saw a little bit more understanding uh, about it, but actually what I find still too often is you get in front of us as well in committee um, senior civil servants, not all um, secretaries by any means, but who don't talk to people on the ground. So uh, one recently we had a civil servant talking about a situation that had happened in a local authority and they talked about it as though it was exceptional and we are a bunch of MPs, we're going hang on a minute you know, mm. in all our areas this is the same thing is going on, you cannot say this is one off exception and I think that moving, well let's I, I hesitate to say the government has moved the civil service out of London because, let's face it, that's been happening for many years. Mm-hmm. The Labour government did that too. But what we're now seeing is some very senior civil servants. We were just counting up, will we, two second perm secretaries are now based outside London, HMRC and Treasury with uh, Beth in, um, up in Darlington. Mm. But we need to see much more of that so that they think it's a normal thing, it would be quite normal to go and engage with the local authority. And I meet regularly with certain local authority groups and it's really helpful to hear their take on how government policy is working. So if you're talking to treasurers of councils or whatever, and they, they I think government could do with hearing that much more directly. And there was a yeah. danger that Whitehall doesn't want to contaminate its advice-giving to, yeah. to government. And I think we need to see. So as a minister, I remember once, well, a number of times, sitting in meetings and you'd get someone from a trade union or a local government or coming to talk to you, and their points were very reasonable. We were at that point in the Labour government where we didn't, announce something till it was ready to announce and then you announced it and then you got feedback it was the wrong way round um i'm not sure any government's got it perfect but actually much better to be open about ideas fly some kites hear people's views and shape it and i think the civil service is still a bit in the policy side of things although tomorrow finkelstein is now leaving the policy um, profession which is um a, sort of a shift isn't it so we yeah. might see some change but i think they're a bit more in their own little eerie and don't always hear those outside voices And good local officials on the ground in local government are very directly connected to their population. And as my my acting chief executive in Hackney said... I was complaining about potholes to him, you know, we all have our things we complain about when I'm cycling around Hackney, and, and he said, oh, I was running in the half marathon, and I had a good, close look at all the <laughs> potholes, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a big difference to what Alex is doing <laughs> every day. Yeah, <laughs> Alex, lost, um, final
2: word. I, I really agree with that, and actually, when we talk about our Places for Growth programme and stuff, sometimes it can seem a bit like, is it about just moving people around for the sake of it, or about cheaper offices? It's not, it really isn't about mm. that, it is about the reality of getting close to the communities mm. that we serve, and just as, you know, as an illustration of that, when I was up in, in Darlington last a month, and they've just written, by the way, a fantastic uh, IFG report coming out this week on Darlington, which I've just started to read. Um, uh, but when I said there last month actually there was the um, there's eight different departments. If you if you haven't been there before, um, working together in this this one big office Senate, and mostly people who've, who've joined recently, and terrific sir, energy and, and vitality to it. But the Treasury kind of labor markets team were actually there in the building the day that I was there. And I saw them having a, having a seminar, a workshop jointly with people who worked in the local benefits office about, you know, who, who were responsible for helping people back into work, um, you know, and uh, job coaches. And he thought, well, that's a very different type of policy making type of thing. Obviously, this sort of fiercely clever, analytical people with facts and figures coming out, mm-hmm. things trained up to the gills. But actually listening yeah. to the experience of people at the front line of trying to... Get people back into the job. And I thought that was, that, that was a kind of like a heart, this is beginning to work type mm-hmm. moment. It was great.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's a nice positive mo- uh, thought to end on. And I can recommend our report on Darlington, which is indeed out this week. Um, thanks for that. So, can I just uh, ask you to thank our uh, speakers for joining us today? Uh, I think it's been a great event.